Hello, and welcome to the show. I'm Martin Wilshire, host. And uh, this year marks the 60th anniversary of the Betty and Barney Hill incident happened in September 1961. And we are lucky enough to have uh, Betty's uh, niece, Kathleen Martin, on. Um, Kathy, uh, we were talking ahead of the show. Uh, she was on uh, early um, when I started this podcast um, almost 10 years ago now. Uh, so she was on early. I went to her where she was at in uh, Newburyport, Mass, and uh, recorded with her. It was back when I was not doing live shows at that time. But anyway, um, it's always a pleasure having her on. Uh, she's a, a very nice woman. And uh, you can actually talk to her later tonight well, because at the last half hour of the show, we'll be taking calls. And uh, speaking of calls, next week, it's all calls. It's all about you. Um, it's a call-in show. And uh, I'm always a little bit nervous doing the call-in shows. This is going to be my second one. I think I did half of one one time, so maybe one and a half. But um, so next week, if you want to call in, talk about an experience you had, uh, UFO-related, please, <laughs> or a uh, topic along those lines. Um, and the lines will be open. Bill will be screening them. And so I'd love to hear from you next week. Um, and that's going to start the usual time as it is right now, 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Uh, Saturday, I'm going to be popping in at the Big Phone Home. That uh, that banner is on my website, podcastufo.com. And we are going to have Lou, uh, uh, Luis, that is, uh, call in uh, about uh, another, I don't know, 50 minutes from now or so. He's going to be on the show. He's going to be with us through the break as well. Um, and he's going to be talking about what that is all about. And that's coming up this Saturday. And um, he is a, a great guy. He came kind of out of nowhere. I was the uh, actually uh, he asked me on the show early on in his show. And I always like to say yes, because uh, that's how I started. Someone said yes. And so I'll be uh, uh, talking to him later on over at our website. It's uh, uh, the blog this week is called UFO Ejects Metal Over Iowa. And uh, check that out. Another great blog from Charles Lear. Um, I don't usually get too personal about things that are going on um, in my life, but I, I did want to talk about this real quickly. And uh, there is a reason I'm talking about it. And that is uh, tomorrow morning when I get up and I look at the clock at eight o'clock, I will be uh, fully vaccinated because I had my shot. Uh, it'll be two weeks ago, Wednesday. And, uh, you know, it's not a big deal. I, I think the more we get vaccinated, the, the better off we're going to be in this country. I have a very close family member that did every single thing right for an entire year. And uh, his friend that he lives with stepped out for one hour, one hour, uh, two, or th two and a half weeks ago. And now he's suffering with uh, COVID right now. And I just think it's real important um, that we get vaccinated and uh, it's not a big deal. It doesn't really hurt if that's the problem. And, you know, some people do get a little bit sick, but it's a lot better than uh, COVID because we don't know the lasting effects of COVID, COVID and where that will go. Um, it could affect the brain, the lungs, um, the heart and, and all that. There's a lot of things we just don't know yet. And I'm hoping we can get through this thing together and get back to some normalcy. And the only way we're really going to do that is if we all work together. And uh, anyway, that's it. Um, I don't like talking politics or anything like that. Unfortunately, it has become uh, politicized a lot. But uh, let's just uh, we're in this together and let's uh, get through it together. And 
I want to thank everyone that listens to the show. And I want to thank everyone that supports the show. And uh, we are ready to bring in our guests now. And thank you for uh, letting me say my, uh, you didn't have any other choice really <laughs> for me to give my opinion on this. But here is uh, Kathleen. Welcome to the show, Kathleen. Thank you, Martin. Nice to be back with you. Yes. Wasn't wasn't it uh, like close to nine years ago when you were, I mean, it was right near the beginning of my show, I believe, right? Yes. <laughs> I, I thought I had done the first show, but maybe not. I, no, it was a little bit in the, and I, I remember exactly what you said. You said that if Stan Friedman says you're okay, then you're okay. And you're <laughs> welcome to my house. Okay. That's what you said. Stan yeah. had been on your show then. Yeah. And uh, I was staying with my father. It was during the summer in Newburyport, Massachusetts. That's right. Yes. Yeah. And uh, and we miss Stan. I know you were very, very close to Stan. Yes, he was and, a good friend. Yeah. That's right. And a co-author, actually. Co-author, well. mentor in the beginning. Yeah, yeah. And it's it's sad because every time I go into a conference there, you and Stan were together you know, sitting together, talking with your books and all the people around you and all that. Mm -hmm. uh, he will be, uh, he is very missed. Yes. And uh, what what a great legacy. Mm -hmm. He did a lot of great things for the UFO world. He did. He certainly did. Yeah. And so how did you, how did you first uh, just, I know it's off topic of Betty and Barney Hill, but not really. How did you first meet Stan and, 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 you know, get involved with writing that book and everything? Well, I think that I met him for the first time in December of 1971. But, wow, really? That long ago? <laughs> yes, I think that he uh, spoke at the University of New Hampshire, uh, and, and I went to see him there. But then uh, over the years, I got to know him because of my interest in UFOs, and be particularly because of my aunt and uncle's case. And so I uh, was a big fan of Stanton's. I enjoyed going to his lectures at UFO conferences. I always went to the MUFON UFO conference, and, and he was usually a speaker. And so I spent years researching my aunt and uncle's case. I started in 1990, and uh, very slowly over uh, 14 years uh investigated and investigated uh investigated spoke with all of the original researchers i could find spoke with other researchers uh my husband and i drove the route that betty and barney took on that fateful trip uh i went to the white mountains with betty over and over again and with my husband as well and uh you know i had written a manuscript. Betty knew that I was uh, writing about her. She approved of it. Uh, she gave me the hypnosis tapes, which I transcribed for comparative analysis, which I did for the book. And then uh, it came to the star map. And ah. when I do research, I don't base it on somebody else's findings. I want to do that research myself. That's the kind of researcher that I am. And, but I didn't want to spend two or three years uh, researching the star map and doing all of that astronomy. And so uh, Stanton 
was involved in that from the beginning when Marjorie Fish had finally uh, found a, a pattern in her uh, work over a four-year period. Uh, and Stanton was called in to vet Marjorie's work by Coral Lorenzen, who was the direct co-director of the Aerial Phenomena Research Organization. And so uh, I went to Stanton at the MUFON Symposium and uh, asked, told him that I'd been writing this book and told him that I had Betty's entire collection. She had passed at that time. I was the trustee of her estate and uh, was setting up an archival collection for the University of New Hampshire. And uh, Stanton found my what I was saying to be interesting and said before he would agree to work with me by writing a chapter on the star map and also a, a chapter on debunkers and disbelievers, then uh, he wanted to see my collection. And so he came to my house. I was living in Stratum, New Hampshire at that time. And um, my husband and I had him for a few days while he went through the collection. We talked at length. I thought we'd never stop talking. <laughs> and uh, finally, uh, he read the manuscript that I had written. And he, he said, because I was being scientific and unbiased, uh, in my work, and he liked the quality of my work, he agreed to work with me. And so I thought it was just going to be for, for that book, which was uh, published in 2007, but we began our work together in 2005. And, mm -hmm. yeah, and, and we just discovered that we enjoyed working together, and uh, we spoke at conferences, sometimes from the same stage. We always shared vendor tables and realized that we liked one another. We, he was <laughs> easy to get along with. He made me laugh a lot. And, yeah. and uh, he thought that I was funny too. And, and so we had a good time working together. And the, he asked me to write another book with him. And, and I said, yes, I'd, I'd be happy to do that. Uh, he, it went so smoothly the first time. And then we wrote a third book together as well. So the um, oh. second one was Science Was Wrong. The third one oh, yeah. was Fact Fiction and Flying Saucers. I think I might have them all possibly. Mm -hmm. um, I wanted to show this to the YouTube people. Now, isn't that, that's Betty's drawing, right? Yes, it is. She even signed it. I can yeah, see. I can see it on the right. Yes. And, uh, and this is the star map right here. How close yeah. is that? That's I mean, that's pretty that, amazing. That's the identification. Um, Stanton found the three scientists who vetted Marjorie's work and said that it was accurate. And uh, I think one angle was a little bit off. So uh, David Saunders, who was a statistician who worked on the Condon Project, he was one of the chief investigators there who was thrown out because he had found the trick letter and and uh, the infamous trick letter and sent it to uh, Dr. James McDonald, who publicized it. But anyway, um, uh, Stanton uh, did that work, uh, found the scientists. Uh, 
David Saunders said that if there hadn't been one slight angle uh, problem, that it, the chance of this happening just by chance of Betty remembering that and reproducing it as a post as the result of a post-hypnotic suggestion would have been a million to one, but it was reduced to uh, a thousand to one uh, because of that slight angle difference. Amazing. Just amazing. Yeah. You know, I, I say this a lot and only because it's very true is I, I have a lot of new people that are new to the UFO world because, mm-hmm. and the reason I know that is I'm getting, I, I'm getting flooded with emails, people that are, are really taking an interest because of all the things that have happened for the last few years. Um, you know, the government coming out and saying, you know, this is that. And, and we're going to be talking about that when I have Lou Elizondo coming up in a couple of weeks, I'm going to be talking about that sort of thing then. But um, what I'm getting at uh, uh, Kathleen is that there are some people out there that may not know what we're talking about when we talk about Betty and Barney Hill. And mm-hmm. I know there 90% of everyone has heard it a, a million times or researched it, or it's, it's the, you know, the, one of the biggest cases as far as what we call, um, what, what is, what encounter is that of the fifth kind? It, uh, no, I think it is fourth? I think five is when you call in a craft and, and communication occurs oh, okay. it's the encounter of the fourth kind okay but anyway yeah. this was uh one of the first ones on record i mean there was a case back in the 1920s i guess where something purportedly happened but um this is one of the very early ones and it kind of like changed everything in its time yes, so sir. if you can can you tell what happened in september of 1961 Kind of a nutshell. <laughs> Betty and Barney were on uh, a vacation to Niagara Falls, and uh, then they took a leisurely trip from Niagara Falls uh, through uh, Canada, through Ontario, and uh, stopped for the night, and then went on to Montreal, had a wonderful vacation there, and then decided to head home through New Hampshire because a hurricane was whirling up the coast. And uh, Barney found himself lost and on the road that would take him to New Hampshire. So uh, on the outskirts of Montreal. So they just traveled on, had a great time um, uh, during the daylight hours and arrived in um, New Hampshire at uh, about 930 at night. They stopped, they had a little snack and took off at uh, 10.05 and headed south. And uh, in a nutshell from there, uh, a craft came in closer and closer. They got out, they looked at it, uh, and it continued to come in closer. It hovered beside the old man of the mountain when they got out to look at it. And uh, it was then uh, at least one and a half to two times the length of the old man's profile, which is 48 feet from forehead to chin. They got back into the car, uh, exited Franconia Notch into North Lincoln, New Hampshire, where all of the uh, cabins and motels and tourist attractions were. This was the off season. It was September 19, 1961. And at about midnight on that night, uh, 
going into the early morning hours of September 20th, uh, this craft finally swooped down over their vehicle, stopped only about 200 feet above them. Uh, Barney had to pull the car to the middle of the road so he wouldn't be directly under the craft. He he got out of the car um, and the, uh, looked at it through binoculars. The craft then shifted to an adjacent field. He then saw entities dressed in black, shiny uniforms. Uh, they all but one turned and walked to a panel. When they did that, little red lights started to come out of the craft and something started to drop down out of the bottom. From the expression on the one's face who was in uh, at the window in this craft, Barney believed at that point that there was a plan to capture him. He went screaming back to the car, telling Betty that they had to get out of there or they were going to be captured. As he entered the car, he saw that the craft was coming in their direction. Within minutes, they heard a series of code-like buzzing sounds striking the trunk of the car. The car vibrated, a ting electrical tingling sensation passed through their bodies. As if only a moment had passed, they found themselves 35 miles down the road with memories of finding themselves somewhere on a dirt road with tall trees all around, with of a roadblock and of a large fiery orbs that appeared to be sitting on the ground. Uh, they heard another series of buzzing sounds and drove on home. There was physical evidence that something uh, unknown had happened. They were later than they anticipated by two to three hours and concerned that the craft had come so close that they might have been contaminated. Wow. And so I remember that, well, it's one of the cases of that you hear about missing time. It's one of the early missing time cases, really. Yes. And um, they saw the marks on the car the, the next day or, or something like that, right? Yes, the day they arrived home, which is the same day that they were taken. You know, they it was mm -hmm. the early morning hours of uh, September 20, 1961. Um, they went into the house and uh, took a little nap. And then uh, their, uh, Betty called my mother. My mother called a neighbor of ours who was a physicist who told Betty that if she had a compass, she should take it out to the trunk of the car. That is when she discovered shiny spots on the trunk of the car and the compass world indicating that there was a magnetic field there. Now, when uh, someone wants, is asking, uh, so I'll just get this out of the way real quickly. They wanted to know if you had a contact email and you do actually on your website, which is yeah. Kathleen hyphen marden.com. Is that right? That's correct. Yeah. So someone can get in touch with you there. And um, so they thought they were contaminated. Now, I remember you and I talking about the dress. Did the dress that Betty had on at the time, did that ever get checked out? I just can't remember how that went. It did. First, uh, it was torn from waist to hemline on the lining. The hem was torn down on one side, and the zipper that ran up the back of her dress had a two-inch tear in the stitching and a one-inch tear in the thick zipper fabric. Uh, it was in fine shape when she put it on that morning. When she returned home the following morning, it, uh, it was torn. It was ruined. 
Um, so yes, and then when she took it out of her closet the next time, uh, there was a pink powdery substance on the dress. It has undergone scientific analysis in uh, probably at about 10 laboratories now. I'll have to count them all up someday, both uh, chemical analysis and DNA analysis. When they thought that they were possibly contaminated, did they take any actions like go to the hospital and get checked out or anything like that? They took long showers. Hmm. And uh, that's what they did. The scientists didn't tell them to do anything else, the physicist. Yeah. And I remember the last time you were on the show, I believe the last time you were on, uh, Lee Spiegel called in and talked about Pease Air Force Base, um, a report there. Um, yeah. That was that's that was a new angle I had never heard of before. Oh, yeah, there was a radar report at Pease Air Force Base at 2.14 a.m. And then the North Concord, Vermont uh, radar station, which was 17 miles from um, where they were in New Hampshire, uh, also earlier in the evening had a large, uh, some kind of craft that was uh, flying erratically against the wind. And the Air Force mm -hmm. wrote it off as a weather balloon. Weather against balloon. the wind. Yes, against the wind. <laughs> I, I've mentioned this on my show before. I lived in a house in Maine, actually, but it was across the Piscataqua River, Piscataqua mm -hmm. River from Pease Air Force Base. And mm -hmm. we, we were on, our house was uh, a lone house on a hill called Winter Hill. And so we were up there and I could look across and not quite see the runway, but I could see when they were touching down on the runway and taking off. But I do remember seeing weather balloons mm -hmm. because my sister and I would sit on the lawn with uh, binoculars and see these odd things like just they, they didn't take off, but they tethered them for some reason. They were just sitting there. We thought they were UFOs. I remember <laughs> we, were, we were thinking that's what they were, but they weren't moving. Maybe they were UFOs. I don't know. <laughs> but uh, so this happened and. When did it actually become public? Because I remember reading somewhere where Betty and Barney spoke in like Methuen, Mass or someplace like that at some conference before it actually snowballed or was it just it after that? A, it wasn't a conference. Uh, they were attempting to uh, discover more information, especially Betty. She was uh, she wanted to learn all that she could about UFOs after this occurred. And mm. Walter Webb. Uh, who was an astronomer at the Hayden Planetarium in Boston, uh, was also a NICAP member, and he is the one who investigated their case. And so they, uh, Betty and Barney, in 1963, went to a NICAP meeting, uh, the Tri, Tri, I think it was, no, two-state study group, UFO study group. And uh Betty and Barney ended up at the end of the meeting uh, talking about their sighting. But this was supposed to remain confidential. But I have the letter from the newspaper reporter who wrote to Betty and Barney and said that, their, uh, that Betty's friend had been talking with him 
And if they would talk with him, uh, even though he was a newspaper reporter, he would never commercialize their story. And Betty and Barney said, absolutely not. Uh, In fact, he went up to their house one night and sat on their steps and they escaped out the back door and went to my grandparents' house. I grew up across the street from my grandparents and they sat and we talked and and they waited until they thought he had finally left and and drove back to Portsmouth. Uh, So uh, he ended up talking to everyone else except for Betty and Barney, it seems. He he didn't talk to Dr. Simon, but he talked to the Air Force. He found uh, 12 to 14 people I have recently discovered in files that Stanton gave me before he passed that uh, he discovered 12 to 14 people who were in that area that night and observed the same craft that Betty and Barney observed. And he knew that because he drew lines from where Betty and Barney were, where the craft was, and where those individuals were, and those lines intersected. Now, um, I remember, you know, you hear all sides of of this and and what uh, people have said over the years. And um, one of the things that comes up now and then is people talk about the episode called the Bolero shield on the outer limits. And that was, uh, that had come out and that the, um, the alien figures that Barney described looked similar to, uh, what they were in the outer limits episode. And, and well, what do you say to that when you hear about that, when people talk about that? What I say to that, to that is that on September 26, 1961, Betty and Barney sat down and wrote a letter to NICAP and described those entities as uh, wearing black, shiny uniforms and were so startling to Barney that he remembered their facial expressions, but not the features on their faces. Mm. He told Walter Webb uh, during his investigation in early October that uh, they were non, uh, they were somehow not human. That's a quote, somehow not human human, uh, superior type of entities, uh, not from this earth. Uh, In terms of the Bolero shield, uh, Betty and Barney didn't watch that, first of all. Uh, Carl Flock, who uh, worked for the CIA during his lifetime, he was the uh, former deputy assistant uh, of, uh, of defense and did a a thorough investigation of Betty and Barney's story. And uh, he addressed that. He said that they were not science fiction fans. There was not a science fiction book in Betty's house, despite what the disinformants said. And uh, so in terms of Barney seeing that, I have actually written a paper somewhere on the difference between the entities in the Bolero shield and what Barney and Betty remembered under hypnosis. In the Bolero shield, uh, that was viewed in black and white, and those masks were paper mache. What you see uh, is a new modern mask that's made to look a lot like what Betty and Barney described. So uh, that's deceptive. 
in my mind yeah. uh, there. Mm-hmm. Also, uh, the eyes were that Betty and Barney saw were different than the Bolero Shield eyes. Uh, the person in the Bolero Shield, I think, had a wide thing and a regular human mouth and chin. Uh, that isn't what Betty and Barney described. Uh, the, the non-human entities spoke telepathically. Uh, the the Bolero Shield person was speaking in English. The Bolero Shield person was wearing a, a light turtleneck. Uh, Betty and Barney saw uh, non-humans dressed in black, shiny uniforms. The Bolero Shield individual had a regular human body. That's not what Betty and Barney saw. So there are so many differences. I don't know how anyone can uh, say, uh, can dismiss this as uh, some television show that Barney watched. It's uh, absolutely absurd when you really get well, down and look at it. Yeah. So it's always good to talk about what you hear out there, you know, when you, you know, to clear things up. And yeah. that that's my, my meaning for that. I just want to give a little shout out to Mark Stanley in the uh, chat room. Um, he has written some beautiful music, uh, uh, many, many beautiful uh, things over the years. But uh, we do play, uh, I do play his music on my antiques show and have played it on this show before. Um, so hello, Mark, out in uh, California. Uh, but uh, so there is a question that came in here and I wanted to put it up in front of you so you can read it uh, from Anonymous Rex. Did Betty or Barney ever talk about repeating themes in their dreams or remember more through their dreams before or after their contact? Okay. The idea that both Betty and Barney were having dreams is false. That's another, uh, more information put out by disinformants who were attempting to refute the case. Uh, Betty had five dreams and they began 10 nights after the experience and they lasted for five nights. She had these dreams uh, in the morning just before she awakened Barney was working nights at that time, so he wasn't at home. Uh, When she had these dreams, they were, uh, I have recently learned, uh, had kind of a hypnopompic uh, sense, uh, uh, like a light state of hypnosis. And in that type of dream, just before you wake up, it can include... uh, True memories, real memories, but also fantasy can be added in order to attempt to work through uh, problems or anxiety that you might be having. Barney did not have any of these dreams. His first dream came when he was under hypnosis with Dr. Simon. And I think that probably the reason that uh, Betty was able to tolerate this more emotionally was uh, because she had these dreams. Barney didn't. He This uh, troubled him. Uh, and as time went on, it troubled him e- to an even greater degree. Well, Barney was the one who had the conscious continuous recall of observing those non-humans on the craft and feeling that their plan for him was to capture him. Betty didn't see those entities on the craft. She was sitting in the car, in the passenger seat that he had parked in the middle of the road. She was looking for traffic on the highway because she was going to have to pull the car to the side of the road. And the internal light was on. So 
uh, you know, she just didn't see what was going on. Barney did, and he was, he developed post-traumatic stress disorder, what they called conversion hysteria, uh, where he developed uh, bleeding ulcers, uh, had to take time off from work. He, he w- was in the hospital with the bleeding ulcers. Wow. And, uh, yes, and, and high blood pressure. He was having uh, some serious difficulties over uh, this experience that he had. And uh, also the fact that his shoes were so deeply scraped that he had to purchase new shoes. There was There was evidence that he couldn't explain and it bothered him terribly. And that is the reason that he was referred to Dr. Benjamin Simon. I see. Um, Over on Facebook, we have a question. Uh, Did or were they aware of incidents before this one or after? And I do have to, my little chime in on that is this is actually really kind of the first known one of of its kind. Um, Again, I mentioned earlier in the 20s, something happened, but that wasn't really, I mean, you have to really dig for that one. Um, But What about after, though? I mean, did they pay attention to what was going on after that? I mean, the first case that was similar to hers, hap- theirs happened many, many years after, right? Yes. Um, the the first case that happened after theirs that they were aware of, were uh, that was the Charlie Hickson and Calvin Parker case in 1973. Mm. Then uh, Travis Walton uh, came up after that, and then there were three women in Kentucky. Barney didn't live for any of this. Barney died in 1969. Ah, uh, by the way, uh, Calvin Parker was uh, of that incident was on recently, and I've been pretty uh, good friends with him over the last few years, and in touch with him all the time. And, and um, I just want to say that he he's not doing too well right now, and yeah. so uh, I hope uh, we can give. Uh, good positive thoughts to him out there. I, I worked with Calvin under hypnosis. Oh, you did? Yes, I did. That was uh, interesting to have him relive two experiences that he had with wow. Crowd. I know you probably can't really talk about that, but uh, but that is, I don't know if you can or not. I don't know how that, that oh, works. I, I, no one told me that I can't. Yeah. Um, okay. Yeah, it was uh, having him relive it uh, was very interesting. Uh, what I got out of all of this is that he was being warned about n- the the danger of nuclear weapons, just like every other experiencer. Uh, these non-human entities wanted him to carry that message to the public on the last abduction that he had. Uh, he uh, she was very, very upset with him. She treated him very, very roughly. And, and, and in return, he tried to kill her, um, put his hands around her neck and beat her head against the wall until fluid ran out of her ears. And, uh. and this story is very different. The, the entities are very different from any of the others that I have cases I've ever worked on, and I've worked on a lot over the past 30 years. And uh, that woman let out a sound that Calvin said sounded like an alligator mating call. And it activated this little robot who uh, were the ones who intercepted Calvin Parker and Charlie Hickson and took them onto the craft. Uh, It was... 
it was really a horrific experience that Calvin had. Uh, he wanted to take that woman and uh, jump off the craft with her if he could get out of there, but he couldn't. Um, wow. You know, he said he didn't care if he died, that he wanted her dead is basically what it was. So she just, she treated him terribly, but it was uh, all about nuclear war. And, uh, you know, Calvin's father worked in the nuclear industry. And I know that Calvin uh, had a drilling business. And I yeah, think- he did, he did like airport infrastructure under, under runways. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So mm-hmm. I don't know if he was involved in nuclear uh weapons or uh, digging for the holes for them, at least. But, uh, you know, that was her major message, which he had, and he had not complied. He didn't even remember it. How could he reply or comply with her wishes? But, you know, all the times, the many, many times he and I have talked, not, not just on the show, but on the phone or whatever, I've never heard him mention any of this. This is really quite amazing. Uh-huh. Yeah. He's yeah. such a kind, gentle person. He's he's like, wonderful, yeah. yeah. Yes. And um, but he did the only thing he ever said is that she put the the like long fingers down his throat, you know, or long finger down his throat or something like that. Causing but, injury and causing him to bleed and, and develop. That's right. He did say that, yeah. Well, yes. Yeah. Wow, amazing. Well, I wanna also um ask you, you mentioned that you started looking at Betty and Barney's case in 1990. Um, So between 1961 and 1990, were you, was it a family discussion on, did you talk about the, you know, what happened to Betty and Barney a lot? Was that a part of topic topics that your family would talk about? Yes. uh, Especially when uh, Dr. Simon uh, allowed them to remember what they had stated under hypnosis. Uh, He had hypnotized them separately and uh, reinstated amnesia. uh, So they couldn't communicate with one another about what they recalled because they couldn't recall what they'd said. And that went on for four months. And then for the last two months, he uh, put them in the same room together with him and they listened to each other's tapes. They listened together to what oh. they said and then uh, kind of integrated it into their consciousness and worked through the um, emotional trauma that was related to that event. Now, I know you've said this before, and I've asked you this question in the past, but how did the story first get out about what happened? I mean, they, they did not want it to get out. Right. Well, let me finish the. the okay, go ahead. Sure. I was going to say about the question: Did uh, did we talk about it as a family when sure. they were coming home from Doctor Simon's office? Uh, they stopped at my grandparents' house. I grew up across the street from my grandparents, so we went over and we we found out then what they remembered under hypnosis, uh, and then how did the story get out? Uh, Betty and Barney wanted it to remain confidential. Uh, and uh, a friend 
of Betty's, uh, a woman who was a UFO investigator. She didn't know this woman before this happened. She met her probably in 1960, oh, probably two or three, something like that. And um, the woman lived near a newspaper reporter named John Luttrell. He wrote for the Boston Traveler. I have um, Betty a letter that John Luttrell wrote to uh, Betty and Barney naming her. So I know that for a fact. And he said uh, that he would like to speak with them. And if they would meet with him, that they uh, would... Uh, he would never write about it. It would be just be for his own personal information. They refused. They said, no, we we will not speak with you. Uh, he went uh, to their house. They escaped. They went to my grandparents' house again. Um, they finally went back home. And he ended up uh, investigating it himself found those witnesses that I spoke about, uh, spoke to the Air Force, and then wrote about it uh, for five days in late October 1965. It was devastating to Betty and Barney. It Mm. was completely devastating, especially to Barney, who had uh, uh, been appointed to the state of New, uh, well, it was the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights State Advisory Committee. Barney had uh, received an award from Sergeant Shriver and the governor of New Hampshire for the work he did through the poverty program. Uh, You know, and they had been invited guests at Lyndon Johnson's inauguration. And I went with them. I was also invited to go. This was before any of this came out. They were actively known in the the state of New Hampshire, in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, in Rockingham County, for the good work that they were doing for people. That was their focus. They didn't want to talk about this UFO experience, except for to scientists and to uh, the family and close friends who were sworn to secrecy. You know, so uh, this was not a good thing that happened to Betty and Barney when this was released. What what did they have any type of um, uh, celebrity type issues or anything like? Did they feel any of that part? Like, in other words, were people camping out to talk to them, things like that? Well, uh, there were. Uh, reporters <laughs> who were kind of camping out or uh, the phone was ringing off the hook. Uh, they, uh, the first night that that happened, they went down to uh, to Pease Air Force Base uh, and stayed uh, with an officer that they knew and, and his wife and until they thought it, they could safely return home. The second night, they went to my grandparents' house and we met as a family. Because this affected all of us as a family, not just Betty and Barney. Uh, This had an impact on all of us. So we had to decide what to do next. And as a family, we made the decision that Betty and Barney uh, should speak about this uh, to the public. They did for the first time uh, in early November of 1965. And... 
it was well received. They were uh, introduced to the crowd by the public information officer from Pease Air Force Base. So uh, wow. they and they told the story. That's when John Fuller, who wrote the Interrupted Journey, met them and uh, asked if they would be interested in having him write a book. Uh, it took a long time for that agreement to be made. They insisted that Dr. Simon had to be part of it. Interesting. We have another question that popped up here in YouTube. And from Richard, could you talk about the strange things that happened after the abduction, including the second time Betty saw the ETs in their craft? Uh, I'm not familiar with that. Have there been any recent events? And recent, um, she passed away in 2004. That's right. She passed away in 2004. Um, Strange things that happened. Well, one of the very strange things was that uh, in the fall of 1961, Betty and Barney started making trips up to the White Mountains to tr- attempt to locate that dirt road with the, the tall trees and where the, the roadblock was and, and the fiery orb. And uh, one time when they returned home, uh, they unlocked the door and there were leaves, withered leaves on their dining room table. Uh, that had not been there. They picked them up to throw them away. That was pretty shocking. And there in the middle of the leaves were the earrings that Barn- that Betty was wearing on the night of the abduction. Uh, she didn't even know they were missing until she found them there. So that was one very weird thing that happened. Uh, another thing that happened is their house periodically was uh, entered and just weird things were done. Um, For example, let me give you one example. When I lived with Betty after Barney's uh, death, I I moved in with her. I was a college student at the time and uh, commuted to UNH. And I was downstairs studying and I was down there. I heard uh, the door open in Betty's apartment and footsteps. So I went up the stairs thinking that Betty uh, had stopped by uh, for some reason. She was still working as a social worker then. And she wasn't there. So I thought, well, maybe she's just left, just stopped in and grabbed something. Went back to my apartment. And uh, then I heard a ra- loud crashing sound. and footsteps as if somebody was running. I ran up the stairs. The closet door was open. Betty's baseball bat was on the floor. That was the loud bang. The front door to the apartment was open. The front door to the apartment house, the front, the gate was open. And there was a man dressed in a beige colored uh, suit running up the road. So that was a weird thing that happened. There were just a number of really strange uh, things. I think it was a psychological operation that was being done on Betty in order to disc- attempt to discredit her so that people would think that she was crazy. Maybe they were trying to push her over the edge. But Betty was as stable as could be. She was a very strong woman and it didn't work and she didn't tell the public about it. What kind of person would do that? I mean, that sounds terrible. Uh, intelligence. You really think so? Wow. Yeah. And 
Along those lines, do you think they had answers or things they knew about that they would withheld, withhold? Or do you think they're, they're as clueless as everyone else? They're not as clueless as everyone else. Stanton and I did a lot of research in physical archives and in uh, the, the military's history and uh, for our book, Fact, Fiction, and Flying Saucers. Um, they began their study of UFOs way back in 1946. Uh, by 1947, they uh, realized that they were disks that could outfly and outmaneuver uh, anything that we had, uh, that they were silent, uh, they appeared to be metallic, that sort of thing. Uh, they did uh, two major studies, one in 1952, where they attempt, they took Reports they had mostly from uh, Air Force pilots and military officers, sometimes enlisted people, and a very small group of uh, US, just citizens who had sightings. Uh, in the first study that they did, where they tried to categorize these uh, as in prosaic categories, such as balloons, uh, uh, airplanes, uh, meteorological phenomena, psychological hoax, etc. 26.94% were true unknowns. They could not identify them as being anything coming from this planet. They did another study, the largest study ever done in uh, 1955. And uh, it was Bluebrook's special report number 14, done at the prestigious Battelle Memorial Institute, the same kind of study that was done in 1952. But this time, there were 3,201 cases, not the 1,500 and some odd from the first study. And there, were, there was a chi-square analysis done, quality analysis done in each of those studies. And uh, in the second study, 21.5% were true unknowns. But what was most interesting is in the chi-square analysis, the best observations, the most reliable observers, and the longer the observation, the more likely it was to be a true unknown. Wow. Really interesting. You really learned a lot when you were doing all that. Um, we are going to be going into a break. I'm going to bring, bring in uh, uh, Luis in just a minute here. Uh, however, there's this question, did Betty and Barney feel like they were chosen or ever mentioned knowing about it before it happened? Have you ever been asked that question before? No, they didn't know about it before it happened. Barney was a firm skeptic. He didn't believe that flying saucers existed. Betty wasn't sure. So they didn't, they, they had talked to my mother about a sighting that she had in 1957 or 1958 with another aunt and an, a group of people um, when she was returning home from grocery shopping on a Friday night. Uh, but Barney scoffed at it, didn't believe it at all, that it, thought it was misidentification, not that my mother was lying. Barney, Betty thought that it might be true. But um, they, they, Betty and Barney thought that they just happened to be in the White Mountains when this uh, these non-humans were looking for a couple of humans to pick up and examine. That's what they thought. Wow. Interesting. I am going to bring in, um, this is uh, Luis um, from the West Coast. 
and we'll all be on the uh, stream together here uh, right. for right now. And uh, then we'll go into break here in just uh, three minutes. Welcome, uh, Luis. Hey, Martin. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here, Kathleen. Pleasure to meet you, my lady. Pleasure um, to meet you, too. Hey, I might as well ask you, do you have a question for Kathleen? Hey, you want to know something? I don't really have a question. I'm just going to back up everything she's saying by, I'm going to say the time frame and the relationship that was being had between Betty and Barty Hill was not a normal everyday thing. And for them to bring attention to that uh, in, in, in the year that they were living in, is to me a testament enough that they're not lying. Uh, why bring attention to that kind of relationship um, in those times? It's just, it doesn't make any sense. But I, and I also found fascinating the physical effects, the ulcers that you were talking about, Kathleen, that is, uh, I didn't know that. So, you know, um, I love the Betty and Barty Hill story. It's one of my favorites. And I think it's, it's, I'm not a real big um, abductions sort of guy. I don't. I, I don't dive into that realm a whole lot. I'm st slowly getting there, but this is by far and away the first case I ever point anybody to. If I ever talk about the the phenomenon in that regards, it's really, really, really cool story. Yeah, it's great. Uh, first well, scientifically investigated case in the United States. Right. Yeah. That's also uh, a big, <laughs> you know, a big sort of check mark to say, hey, this was looked at legitimately as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Wow. Great. Well, I think it's time for us to go into break. So, um, Kathleen, I'm going to remove you from the stream and uh, we'll bring you back in in a little bit. Uh, people are saying, who is this guy? <laughs> yeah. Where did he come no, it's, from? It's a great yeah. question. I'm nobody. I am nobody. Well, that's um, how I feel I, about myself. I, too. Am, I get what you're saying. <laughs> I am very much a new person in this uh, field. Um, I don't, I'm not a researcher. I'm just an actor in Los Angeles that has a really strong passion for this topic. That's yeah. it. Yeah. But yeah. let's talk about what you're doing. Um, so basically... Um, after speaking with you and after specifically right before after speaking with you and right before I spoke to Alejandro Rojas, um, I noticed that uh, sometimes you guys would sh end your shows with, you know, if you want more information, if you want more uh, data, you have to call your representatives, you know, and and I always thought to myself, man, that's a really important message. But how do we actually convince people to do that? Because it's, you know, it's really hard to, um, it, first of all, remember to say that, but, but to try and convince people to, yeah, actually physically pick up their phone, dial a phone number, and request information for our government on the topic of UAPs. So that's how this idea started, and that's what I'm doing, is uh, I'm doing an eight-hour live stream for my channel. I've invited um, former government officials, journalists, scientists um, influencers within the UAP field and outside of the UAP field and everyday average most like myself. And I'm encouraging all of the guests on my show to encourage their audiences and really, really give them the tools and show them how to interact with their government. So you, you just brought up the website. This is our website, www.thebigphonehome.com. When you go to this website, 
um, you put in your email address and it will give you access to a downloadable list that you can uh, go through. It's uh, it's got the Senate, uh, all of Congress. First of all, it's got, it's got every member of Congress and every member of the Senate that have to do with one of six committees or subcommittees. And those committees are the judiciary, the intelligence, the oversight reform, the homeland security, appropriations, space science and tech, and the armed services committee. These are the six committees that have a direct or indirect knowledge of the UAP phenomena. And basically what we're doing is we're calling on Saturday, April 24th, 2021, and we're going to be leaving voicemails and we're going to be reaching out on uh, Twitter and social media to encourage people to call Congress and call these Senate intelligence um, uh, members and request more transparency, more data. And also we're asking, there's a lot of things we're asking for. We have a script also on our website, um, you could check out the script and it basically shows you everything we're doing uh, and right. how to ask for information. Go on. Sorry, guys. Hang on. Go ahead. Gentlemen, here we go. Three, two, one, go. Welcome back. Uh, this is Martin Willis. And right now I have uh, Luis Jimenez um, on with me. And I hope I pronounced your name. It's Jimenez, but that's fine. Jimenez. Yeah. Jimenez. Sorry. <laughs> uh, yeah. uh, I always have trouble with Spanish. Uh, well, some people would argue I have trouble with most names and pronunciations. It's but, totally uh, understandable, anyway. Martin. Don't sweat yeah. it. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so this is really great. And um, I'm going to bring uh, Kathleen back in just to join us. Um, so I'll, I'll be on at some point. I know I filled out your thing at a time, I think, 2 p.m. Uh, Eastern time. I'll be on your stream yep. for a few minutes. I was trying to get Alejandro to come on with me. He seems like he's really, really busy right now with the new, yeah. new thing he's doing. So no, I love it. Uh, yeah. Busy is a good thing, you know. Uh, but yeah, essentially, we're going to be inviting uh, a, a, all sorts of people. We're going to have Lou Elizondo, Sean Cahill, uh, yourself, uh, Jeremy Corbell, and everyone's going to come on. We're going to have roundtable discussions from 10 a.m. to 6 p.m., an eight hour live stream hosted from my channel, which is the Unidentified Celebrity Review. We're going to be calling com- members of Congress. We're going to be calling members of the Senate, specifically the Senate Intelligence Committee. And we're going to be requesting, not demanding, but requesting more UA information and transparency um, and specifically in regards to the 180 day report we're going to be asking for an extension to that report an additional 180 days to let these uh, these uh, intelligence agencies or apparatuses coordinate and put together a more substantial report in the meantime we want a preliminary report so and we also are requesting um, a yearly UAP report we want a report every year. We want data every year. We want scientists to look at this data. We want the discussion to be removed uh, from the taboo and the stigma. We want this to be a discussion that brings people together because the beautiful thing about this topic is that it's bipartisan. It's It reaches across aisles. Everyone is interested in this in this question and this discussion. So it's really simple. Um, if you follow me on Twitter, Lou Angeles, I've been tweeting all for the last two days, especially this week leading up to the event. It's so important that we that we reach out to these senators, we reach out to these congressmen, and we request this information. Um, and that's yeah. basically what I'm doing. That's what's going on. Well, just a couple of things. Um, yeah. Let's see. First of all, that is. Uh, I, I do believe it's going to take more than 180 days because I just heard the rumor that that is that not going to be enough time. 
Yeah. Uh, I don't know. Well, Marco Rubio first. said has said it himself. He said it publicly yeah. that expect this to be delayed because yeah. Everything in government is delayed. Everything is slow. That's yeah. just the facts. And, and unfortunately, we're in a position where we have to wait. And who cares? What's an, if you've been interested in this topic, especially for as long as you guys have, is Martin, you've been doing this show for a long time. If you're interested in this topic, what is another 180 days to get yeah. more and better data? Like yeah. that's nothing. It'll, it'll come, it'll go in, in a blink of an eye. It's so, you know, so let's give them the time. So that way come another 180 days, there won't be any excuses because we've given you the time we've requested the data. And it also gives us more time to keep not pestering them, but requesting them. Hey, this is what we want. This is what we're looking for. This has got to be a look in the mirror moment. If you really want more change, if you really want more data, you have to to call your representatives, local and state representatives. And we've put that list together to you, for you. And if our list is too difficult to navigate, totally understandable, go to James Fox's website, UAP Act Now, and he's got pretty much the exact same thing going on over there. And he's got a much easier, and his tools are much, much faster to get these messages out. But I will tell you, if you make these messages more personal, they have a less chance of being filtered out because there are a there is AI not only in the telephone systems, but on the Twitter handles that filter out messages that repeat. So if you could personalize it a little bit, I think it goes even farther. Let me ask you this also. The uh, that day, the 24th is this coming Saturday. Correct. And how how responsive are people on a Saturday? That's, you know, well, here's, there's a reason why we did that. First okay. of all, it's the anniversary of the Lonnie Zamora case. So, you know, that's also a pretty cool coincidence, but the Socorro. real the, yeah. or Socorro. Correct. Uh, the, uh, the, the real reason why we did this is take today, for example, the, um, the, the adjudication of these police officers uh, in Minnesota. There might be anger. There might be passions uh, for an incident like this. If we are trying to call in, say, on the same day like of something like that happens, I don't want this event to be the scapegoat as to the reason why people couldn't call into their their representatives and express their angers and concerns for something that, you know, that really affects the human psyche. Like this is not an issue where somebody lost their mother, you know, at the hands of a brutal attack to somebody. This is not an issue where we should be calling and being angry. <laughs> so that's why we're doing it on a Saturday. Also, people aren't working on Saturday. More people are available to call. So if we pack those voicemails with our messages and we pack those Twitter handles with our messages, I promise you that will have a huge impact. And it also, I think, will open the dialogue for future events like this to bring on senators and bring on congressmen so we can publicly start having this dialogue. We don't want to annoy Congress in the Senate. We want to kindly request this information. So that was part of the motivation as to why we're doing it on a Saturday. Initially, we were going to do it on the Monday. Um, but after talking to some people, after really looking at this and trying to strategize this, that was, I think, the best course of action just to try and avoid 
um, being a scapegoat or, or God forbid, we just happen to land on a day where a Black Lives Matter protest breaks out or something where people are really angry and looking for social justice. Um, so that's the motivation and the reason behind that. I see. Well, yeah. um, I think, <clears throat> yeah, and, uh, Monday would have been a terrible idea, by the way. <laughs> yeah. you know, Monday's an yeah, extremely I mean, busy day, I'm sure. Extremely busy day. Yeah. Extremely but, busy um, day. But here's the thing is yeah. you can take this website, any one of these two websites that I told you about, and you can do this any day you want. Any day. This doesn't have to be on the 24th. You want to do this right now, you can do it. And that's what I've been doing all day today is just sending out lists of committee members, all from the minority and the majority members, and and making them aware of the 180-day report, making them aware of some of the requests that we're asking for, telling them about our website, and pointing them to and inviting them to join us. You know, that's that's what we got to do. This has got to be, no matter what your belief system is as well in this UFO community, you believe Bob Lazar, you don't believe Bob Lazar, you believe in lizard people, you don't believe in lizard people, you believe in alien bases, you don't believe in alien bases. I don't care. I don't care. What we can all come together on is that we all know the government has more information on this topic. So instead of pointing at each other, let's start pointing up. Let's start pointing this 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 emotion and this passion upwards and i promise you it will yield results and that's the whole point of the big phone home and that's what we're trying to do excellent well it's uh the big thank you so much uh luis it's always a pleasure always fun talking to you martin willis you are a god amongst men sir thank you for having me <laughs> thank bet. you for talking about this kathleen if it's okay, please have Martin uh, forward me your information. I'd love to have you on the show and talk to you all about uh, uh, Betty and Barney Hill. It would be amazing. Okay. Yeah. All right. Awesome. I think <laughs> right, she guys. said okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She sure did. We she have sure it on did. tape. I, I'm, hol- yeah. I'm holding her to it. Holding her to it. Well, I appreciate all of your all help, right. Martin, and uh, and I'll see you on Saturday. You bet. All right. Take yeah. care. All right, sir. Bye-bye. All right. Bye. All right, excellent. Uh, that's great to see new energy like that in in this field. I love it. It, uh, yeah, um, and, and people like that can change things. So it, it's excellent. He has a lot of enthusiasm, and he sure well. does. I love that. <laughs> yeah. And you know, I forget where we were at when we were talking exactly, um, but I think what I wanted to find out was, uh, you know, what it was like for you growing up. Um, you know, before you really took this topic seriously, I mean, I believe, were you a teacher or something like that? You did some, some type of, uh, you had. I started out as a social worker. Social and, worker. Okay. And I uh, went into, I was in psychiatric social work, but I, my first husband was uh, earning his PhD at the philosophy in philosophy of psychiatry at the University of Cincinnati. I couldn't get a job as in psychiatric social work, but I could get a job teaching in the inner city. So I did graduate work in education. I was a teacher for about 14 years. I was an education services coordinator as well. So that's mm. my yeah. professional uh, history before I became an investigator and professional writer. <laughs> <laughs> and um, so... I'm going to ask you kind of an odd question. Do you think that any part of your path for your career was shaped in any type of way by the incident? 
Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm. The reason that I studied psychiatric social work was because of what Betty and Barney went through and, and Barney's reaction to it. Um, you know, if I probably would never have an interest in UFOs if if this hadn't happened. I immediately, as a, a 13-year-old, developed an interest in astronomy. And my father bought a telescope for me. And we went out and, and looked at the sky at night. And, wow. you know, so, yeah, um, I admired the, those investigators. I met most of the original investigators of Betty's and Barney's case. Uh, I went to dinner at Dr. Simon's house. John Fuller was there. And Alan Hynek was there. And, and Betty and Barney. And that was the, the first time that Dr. Simon had ever hypnotized the two of them together. And uh, he sat them down in chairs and had them uh, relive together what they were going through. Did this happen in front of um, Hynek and, and Fuller? Yes, it did. And Hynek wrote about it in one of his books. Yes. Wow. Wow, amazing. I, n- I never heard that part of it. Now, I wanted to ask you of a friend, and he's been on the show a number of times, Bryce Zabel. Oh, was, yeah. Yeah, he was he was writing. Was it a series or was it a uh, was it a single movie he was writing about Betty and Barney? Uh, a series. A series. Is, is that what do we know about that? Well, it's still in the works. He has a partner. Um, he's met with people, but I don't know. Um if I don't know what's going to happen. Yeah. I mean, with COVID, everything kind of changed. I, I know he was involved with a production company. It was, it was pretty serious. So mm-hmm. um, that would be, uh, that will be interesting when that, I mean, Bryce does things right. I mean, he's, he's, he really does his, uh, his research and work. I mean, he's a great writer too. So yeah. I'm sure he'll yeah. do a really nice job with that. Yes. He's, I, I like him because I know that he is not going to focus on horror, that he is going to treat this story sensitively uh, in terms of who Betty and Barney were as people and the experience with the UFO, the abduction, and how it impacted their lives. Right, right. And that that uh, is, let me just see, um, that a question just popped. That is uh, one of the things that, um, you know, I'd like to talk about more, you know, how they dealt with all the pressure of this. You know, how did they kind of filter back into normal life or did they ever? I don't think they ever did after it was made public. They filtered back into normal life until it was made public after the hypnosis sessions with Dr. Simon. They worked through it. They tried to forget about it. Uh, they continued on with their civil rights work and uh, the things that they were committed to doing. But it was that violation of confidentiality that changed everything. And with that came criticism, came uh, disinformants who uh, I believe uh, at least a couple were working uh, for the government. I wrote about that uh, in Oh, one of my books, <laughs> and and uh, you know I, I, they were closely associated with the government and the CIA and the NSA, so uh, it it really created problems I think in their lives. Uh, Barney 
had a, a massive cerebral hemorrhage and, and died in February of 1969. Uh, I suspect that the it, that it was related to the new pressures that were put on him. And the, the he, he really cared about what people thought about him. He had an excellent reputation, but suddenly he was being portrayed as a weak man who would do or say anything that his wife told him to. That was total baloney, but it was uh, carried to the public. He was, both he and Betty were portrayed publicly as being different than they actually were. Uh, mm -hmm. Valerie Cunningham, who was a black, Af uh, uh, black Portsmouth historian, uh, knew Barney, uh, her parents knew Barney as well. And she said that uh, Barney was strong and courageous. So, I mean, that's from a, a woman who knew him well. Hmm. Hmm. Wow. Not, not, not how he was portrayed. I see. Okay. I just want to um, show this right here. First of all, this is kind of fun for people on YouTube. Um, this was uh, the book uh, captured that I got from you, uh, Kathleen. And uh, when you were sitting next to Stan Friedman and there's uh, both of your signatures there. And, uh, but I recently got this in the mail. This is your latest edition right here, the 60th um, anniversary edition. I noticed it's about 20 something, it feels thicker, 20 something pages um, more than the other one. And what can the reader expect? I have read through a lot of this one you know, uh, but I have not even started on this one. But is it basically the same with some type of uh, additions here and there? What what's I made I I made edits to the book in places. There are some new photographs in the book, and there is uh, a thick chapter on uh, all of the scientific research that has been done since the first book was published. So there's a tremendous amount of new information. And when people read that, I don't know how they can possibly say that this didn't happen. And is that is that throughout the book or is there a separate new chapter in there? A separate new chapter. I see. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. they, they, they had to do it that way because of the, the printing or something. I see. Can we talk about what, some of that scientific research is and has been done? Um, I can't tell you the results, but uh, a new star map study. I uh, see. Mm -hmm. a study of alien symbols, uh, uh, DNA analysis on the dress, uh, new uh, chemical analysis on the dress, um, witnesses to the craft that night. I did mention that in our discussion already um and and more <laughs> yeah yeah um you you did address um when when betty saw the second craft right i mean i thought i put that question up there no i i i forgot that one. Oh, that part of it oh you didn't yeah. you didn't say yeah. okay i see okay so what <laughs> yeah and what, yeah. what was that what was that I, I i don't remember hearing anything about that yeah um well, there were two incidents where she might have seen the entities on the craft. One was after Barney's death, 
when she was returning home at night from my grandparents' house, and she saw a craft up very close. It was at uh, high, just about the height of the telephone poles. Uh, another time was when she was out taking photographs of these craft after she, with the CE5 experiments. She was doing uh, there, she took a great photo of a craft with what appeared to be an entity standing in the window. And Did you say a photograph? Yes. Is that anywhere? Can we see that anywhere? It's right in the book. Unfortunately, it's in black and white, and it doesn't show up the way it did on the slides. Um, but it's in the book. Is that online also anywhere anybody can find it? Do you uh, know? I don't think so. I show it when I do uh, lectures on it, and I will be doing some lectures this year at, at Roswell and um, other places. So you're actually going to, Roswell's going to be open to the public basically this year. It is. They're going to have their UFO festival. And I've had Hallelujah. My- <laughs> yeah. so, Somewhat normalcy. Yes. Uh, yeah. And possibly at, uh, at Exeter, New Hampshire is planning to have it. I have yeah. there as well. That's always in the fall, usually. And it's over Labor Day weekend. Yeah. yeah. So and I'm sure I'll see you there. Yeah, <laughs> as long as I can get all the approvals. And I'm going to be talking about the 60th anniversary of Betty and Barney's uh, encounter. Perfect timing then. Yeah. Um, we're going to be taking calls in about 15 minutes just to let everyone know. So if you have questions, um, you can also, uh, I do see a lot of people have been posting them. And thank you for that. Please put them in caps when you put them up on uh, the chat, either Facebook or YouTube. Um, so when you were um, when you were growing up and going, you know, through your everyday life, did people know that you were related to Betty? Did that ever come up at any point? No, because I uh, in 1966. Well, 19. Let's go to 1965. I was a uh, junior. No, I was a senior in high school. I graduated in 1966. So they found out in 1965, but I was uh, on the student council, an officer on the student council, and I was highly respected in school. Nobody would dare to give me a hard time about it. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> so, yeah, they the kids knew at, at school, knew about that. And I I told people that Betty Hill was my my aunt and uh, but when I was working professionally I didn't I didn't talk about it because I thought that it might have an impact on my career right and you and I I mean I I I was in Portsmouth a lot of a big part of my life and uh, did, weren't you in like Newington or something like that or am I getting that wrong I lived in Stratum Stratum that's right okay um and so when the movie, I forget what it was called, um, came out about Betty and Barney, it was just, it was, I remember that because I saw that at the time it came out. What year was that? Uh, 1975, I believe. It was called The UFO Incident, starring James Earl Jones. That's and right. Earl Parsons. Yeah. And uh, James Earl Jones did a great job in that, if I remember right. Yes, he did. Did an excellent job in that. Yeah, he's he's a fine actor. And what did you think about the portrayal of uh, Betty? 
It wasn't accurate. I remembered that. I remember you said something <laughs> like that. It wasn't accurate. Uh, you know, Estelle Parsons portrayed a kind of a little 60s woman who uh, had poor self-esteem and um, just kind of silly, I thought. And that's that's not the way Betty was. I thought mm-hmm. that Betty Davis would have done more, <laughs> <laughs> more like Betty. Per- yeah. Perfect. Yeah. Um, she, that would have been perfect back then in 1975, too, if I remember <laughs> right. Um, yeah. But I do remember watching that and that was like nothing else I'd ever seen before. And then I remember um, like going into work the next day. Someone else had seen it and they said, that's a true story. I said, no, that's not that can't be a true story. And they said, yeah, it happened right here. And, and they knew all about it. I remember that. Yeah. It uh, wasn't entirely accurate, but the interrupted journey wasn't entirely accurate either. Um, John Fuller's publisher put a lot of pressure on him to uh, make the story more interesting and put tension into it and that sort of thing that wasn't there in the true story, which is what Stanton and I wrote. Um, so there, so a little bit different, but, um, John, the publisher, I went to Stanton and I went to John Fuller's archival collection at Boston university. And, uh, there were letters there saying, you know, you're going to have to do this if you want to have a book. Hmm. Wow. Mm -hmm. Wow. So a question over from Facebook, Uh, do you feel that, now, this is something you're actually involved in, so you would have an answer to it. Do you feel abductions are on the rise or decline? Uh, I think reports are on the rise because people who have had these experiences over a lifetime feel more comfortable speaking about it now, uh, not necessarily on the air, but to other people. I was for 10 years the Mutual UFO Network's Director of Experiencer Research. I, I stepped down recently uh, due to time constraints. But uh, during that time, um, I would say we received about 100 reports each month. And we're more of a support kind of uh, uh, arm of MUFON. Mm-hmm. Uh, all of the, the people are also UFO investigators, but uh, they do non-judgmental listening. They're supportive. They will not criticize. Um, They have a list of approved, uh, vetted uh, hypnosis practitioners, uh, mental health providers, if if people are traumatized, and uh, support groups uh, for referrals. We, well, we don't exactly make referrals. We have that list, and people can have their names. They enter into a private for-pay relationship with these professionals. The MUFON does not give free services, but most of the support groups are free. That's really a a good service. And I know that whatever it is that's happening, you know, it really helps people to talk about it. It Um, really does. Yes. I mean, I've seen people at these conferences that, you know, leave the rooms after talking about it. And it's in a way like a group therapy type of situation where they can all discuss it freely. Um, You and Denise Stoner did, uh, who she was on the show at one time, I believe with you, actually, Um, you did a commonalities study, didn't you? 
I remembered something about that. Yes, the, we did one together, and then I've worked on two after that, one for the Edgar Mitchell Free Foundation. And oh, yes. Mm -hmm. That was uh, 3,200 cases at the time the book was published. And then I did another one with Dr. Don C. Dondari and Dr. Michael Austin Melton. Denise was part of this and others on the ERT, uh, who uh, we did one on 516 experiencers. So we have a tremendous amount of uh, statistical information on commonalities that experiencers share that are not common in the pop general population. I see. Wow. Um, uh, let's see. I want to pop up another uh, question. And uh, on wait, before I do that, though, in the commonalities, what would you say is the most um, apparent common um, thing that happens during what people are reporting? Well, it's there are changes that that experiencers undergo. They become different people, hmm. and uh, experiencers are uh, a more altruistic. They have a, a different uh, perception of the world than other people. They are uh, more highly spiritual. They become psychic or uh, intuitive. They become empaths, where they can uh, sense the. Uh, physical body, the emotions of another person as if they were their own. If the ETs are doing that intentionally, then uh, they're brilliant because you can't harm another person if you feel their pain. Hmm. So those are, those are things that really stood out to me. Uh, it tends to be generational, intergenerational, in about 60% of the experiencers knew of family members uh, who had also been taken uh, and the same percentage of family members who had had close encounters with craft. I remember I was at a conference um, when you announced that it was the first time that you were speaking about your own situation. Mm -hmm. And is that still comfortable for you to talk about? I, I can mention it. Uh, it's just that I'm a generational experiencer. My mother and I were taken when Kraft uh, landed on my grandparents' farm in 1966. We'd had a close encounter a couple of months before that. And in April of 66, the uh, craft landed 200 feet from my childhood home on my grandparents' farm. My mother and I both remembered being taken. It was to remain confidential for the remainder of my life. Um, Dr. James Harder investigated it. He hypnotized us. Uh, it was ongoing periodically for my mother and myself, uh, not necessarily together. And uh, mm -hmm. over years but uh do, do you uh, feel like pardon me go ahead Sorry. Uh, i was going to say that initially i was terrified i was traumatized but i worked through that and and realized that uh, the hypno memories i had under hypnosis were of kind entities um hmm. they they were really caring and they didn't harm me and I didn't feel like I was being used. Uh, uh, I feel that they are here because uh, they have concerns about humanity. 
and something they've told me and many, many other people is that our spiritual development is out of sync with our uh, technological growth and, and development. And when these two things are out of sync, there's a danger that uh, the earth, we could destroy our planet. Uh, they say that they've seen it happen elsewhere. And that is their major concern. That's why they came back in the 1940s and stayed. Uh, otherwise, in the centuries before that, according to Major General John uh, Samford, a statement he made in July of 1952, uh, these things have been seen in the sky since biblical times. They come back every century. They're observed every century. But And then they leave. During the 20th century, they came back and stayed. Wow. Well, I'll tell you, if that's what they were saying, um, no one could say it better. <laughs> I don't think. Uh, I think we are totally out of sync and that we could destroy ourselves very easily. And mm-hmm. and uh, that bottleneck we have to get through, so to speak. Yeah. Is, uh, yeah. Um, I am going to, uh, this is all good. We do have, uh, before I... Um, before I go into uh, taking phone calls, this one last question up here. Was Betty and Barney's car ever examined for anomalies, their car itself? I know you mentioned the magnetic um, issue with the compass spinning and things like that. Yeah, as far as I know, it was just the magnetic issue with the compass. I see. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that would be something to do. <laughs> you know, I mean, that would have been interesting if they looked at it. So the lines are open now. Bill is standing by. And don't forget, next week we have just a call-in show. And that number is 855-472-5483. If you're listening and uh, you're not on YouTube, again, that number is 855-472-5483. And Bill is standing by. (laughs) Good Bill over there. He's going to be helping me out next week during the the call-in show. well, I'm having a great time. I'm so glad you could come on this show. And I know um, I saw that you were doing a lot of interviews. So a lot of people are uh, interviewing about about this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, here's another question I think is pretty, uh, pretty interesting. Uh, Mary Grace uh, asked, did Betty or Barney or you or your mother acquire any psychic abilities after abductions? Anything change? I know that Betty was... Uh always kind of intuitive. She said, she'd always say she wasn't psychic, but she was intuitive. Um, I don't know about my mother, but uh, for me, I'm highly intuitive. I've I've taken part Mm -hmm. in experiments where uh, I was hitting the target pretty well. Really? Wow. That's interesting. Now, did you ever consider that there was possibly a connection between what Betty and Barney was involved with in your own situation? Oh, absolutely. Really? Uh, wow. What happened to my mother and I occurred when Betty was working with a team of scientists who uh, were trying to call in craft. And um, she wanted one to land on my grandparents' farm. And so I think that, you know, they probably thought that maybe that Betty wanted them to meet the family. <laughs> my goodness. Wow. I'm, I think there's a an amazing question up here that I've never even considered myself in any type of way. Not that I look a lot into the abductions or experiencers uh, part of this, but uh, David writes, are people in prison ever abducted? 
Wow. What a thought. I don't know of any abductees who are in prison. So they want to be abducted. <laughs> I suppose they would love to be abducted. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's a, that's a really great question. And I'd love to f find out if there's ever any, um, ever any answers to that. If you, well, you know, if, uh, if experiencers become empathic, then they probably wouldn't go to prison because if they harm somebody else, they feel the pain. Hmm. Oh, wow. All right. Uh, we have Rob um, on the line calling from Pennsylvania. Rob, welcome to the show. Mm, thank you. And uh, thanks for your show. And thanks, Kathleen, for being on the show. Um, I just had a, I had a question about um, maybe your insight into what experiencers uh, remember and the things that they see when they have the events happen to them. Um, I know that there are various things like um, lost time um, and memories that come and go. Is there possibly an explanation you might uh, have for that kind of uh, mind uh like mindset or something, I don't know how to describe it. Or is there some kind of like hypnosis state they may be experiencing um, while they're being abducted, um, and then they they their their memories of what happened or their attempts of communication that may occur uh, to them. They may visualize things in an unusual way, almost like a dream. Um, yeah, you know, so I'm, I'm having trouble trying to explain what yeah, I'm trying I, to I think I so I'll try to answer that. In our studies, uh, we discovered that the majority of experiencers have some conscious recall of what has occurred, especially uh, when they're being taken and uh, they're oftentimes they're awake. And they say that it's, it's like uh, undergoing anesthesia and then coming out of anesthesia. In terms of uh, memories, there might be two things at play. Uh, I don't think that it's the trauma of the event that wipes out the memory. I, uh, I believe that these non-human entities uh, either do it intentionally, because when Betty was being walked off the craft, uh, she said to the leader, uh, do you think you can come back sometime? There are people I'd like for you to, to meet. And uh, he said, well, he didn't know, uh, but perhaps he would. He, it wasn't his decision to make. And she said, well, how would you find me? And he said, I, we can always find those that we want to find. And he told her that, well, we've decided that you and Barney shouldn't remember this, that uh, we've decided that you're going to forget about it. And Betty said, uh, then, you know, if, if it's the last thing I ever do, I'm going to remember this. And uh, she did remember more than Barney. And she worked through some of this in the dreams that she had. But um, that might be the, their decision. I also took part in, ex in an experiment. And in this experiment, we had... Uh, as people who were UFO abduction researchers. We had a psychotherapist, two skeptics, and a man uh, who communicates with non-humans. He's been 
uh, in communication since he was eight years old when they appeared in front of him. And he was a police officer from England. He now lives in the United States in the same town that I live in. So this was very convenient when we met. And uh, this experiment uh, had to do with communicating with these non-humans who were uh, fifth and sixth dimensional beings. So we couldn't see them, but we could feel them. We had a very strong magnetic kind of uh, electromagnetic tingling through our bodies. And we could measure the, the rise in the part of the room that they were standing in as well. But then um, we learned how to communicate with them individually. And one came to me. I communicated with him and I wrote down everything that he told me. And it's a good thing I did because when he was gone, I completely forgot about what he said. I knew it had happened, but I couldn't remember a thing. If I hadn't written it down, um, I wouldn't have known. And my husband was with me when this was occurring. Um, so uh, very strange. So I wonder if it's that powerful electromagnetic field that has a lot to do with uh, not remembering. Interesting. Yet some experiencers do remember quite a lot. Anything else, Rob? Yeah, very interesting. No, that's everything. Thank you, Kathleen and Martin. That's great. Uh, all right. Thank you for the call. So the lines are wide open, and I uh, hope this doesn't happen next week for long. <laughs> 855-472-5483, and uh, Bill is standing by. And um, let's see. When when um, they were, uh, Betty and Barney, when they were like, say, four, four years after this, I know you said, I think it was 1990s when uh, Barney passed away, right? Um, but he just died in 1969. Oh, that's right. That was right. That's right. At 46 years old, terribly yes. young. Mm -hmm. Before he died, though, were they asked to speak at uh, in interviews, like on TV or things like that, when this got out? Well, after the interrupted journey was published, uh, they were uh, under an agreement that they would publicize that book. So they were on television to tell the truth. Um, I remember the tell the truth one. They were yeah. on Linkletter. Um, they were on a, a variety of different shows, radio shows and television shows. And how did they handle that? Were they okay with doing those type of things? Um, they seemed to be. It took up time. They had to take time off from work to do it. But uh, they seemed okay. They had sort of memorized what they were going to say. They said the same thing every time. Right, right. Um, so uh, this question here, uh, please put your questions in caps. Um, what's your, uh, I don't know if you want to comment on this or not, but what is your uh, opinion on Dr. Jacob's conclusion regarding E.T., the UFO phenomenon, and what I know of that, or maybe I'm thinking of someone else, isn't he saying um, there's a lot of um, hybrids like Among Us and that type of thing? Yes, and they want to supplant us. Um, insectoid, the, the, he calls them insectolins, the mantis types. And David and I uh, have, David Jacobs and I have discussed this at length together. 
and at conferences and on the telephone. Uh, we have a friendly professional relationship. Uh, we agree that uh, there is a hybridization program. Uh, we, uh, I don't know if he agrees with me that uh, these hybrids are being born to human parents. Um, he takes a negative view of it because he thinks that they're here to supplant us. I uh, uh, believe that they are here uh, to attempt to save us from ourselves and to save this planet. Yeah. Do you think, um, but what would it take? You know, we had, if that's the case, if that's what they're really doing, you know, it makes you wonder what would it take because there's, for instance, um, you know, nuclear warheads have been shut down. Um, there's been so many messages uh, that we better take care of the planet. I mean, and you hear that over and over and over again. Do you think that there can be any impact from that? Or do you think people are just saying, oh, everyone's crazy? You know, like the general public will never take that seriously. I think that if enough experiencers and researchers, this was all part of our research studies as well, where we had open-ended questions. Did the ETs uh, give you any information? And if they did, what was that information? So it was, uh, you know, messages repeated over and over again by uh, hundreds, if not uh, uh, experiencers who were given the same message. And Bud Hopkins used to write about it too, the, the message of uh, the destruction of this planet that uh, uh, often experiences are shown uh, holographic images or screen images of uh, the planet uh, under nuclear war, people's faces melting off, that kind of thing, horrifying images. But the uh, ETs have wanted humans uh, who they've been in contact with to spread this message. Unfortunately, uh, there was such a disinformation program and experiencers uh, who went forward uh, suffered for the rest of their lives from criticism, from people making fun of them. The federal government uh, cast experiencers and, and even UFO observers in kind of a kooky light. And so uh, that I think is changing now. It's being taken more seriously. Uh, I think as a result of all of the studies that have been done on experiencers, there are many credible people. There are military officers, many who have been abducted. And uh, I have spoken with them uh, they've contacted me. I've hypnotized some of them even. They will always remain silent, I believe. But I can tell you that there are many, many credible people who have had these experiences, stable people. And uh, it's important for that message to get out. And I'm just hoping that more and more experiencers, since I'm speaking ab about the findings of of our studies of more than 5,000 experiences errs, that uh, we will, that this message will be carried further than it has in the past. You know, it's still, it's still a taboo topic for sure. I mean, yeah. 
you know, I mean, the question someone might ask, well, why doesn't, why don't they abduct a senator or, you know, uh, a Supreme Court judge or someone like that? And, you know, if you, if, if that was the case and they brought something up publicly, um, their career would be ruined. <laughs> you know, I mean, uh, maybe not, maybe not a justice because I think that's a lifelong, like a tenure there where nothing can really happen to them unless they do something illegal. But, um, but still, their reputation would be soiled by it. Absolutely, and they might have abducted the head of the of uh, the the United Nations. Bud Hopkins wrote about that, in, yeah. and and further investigation uh, went on about that. Uh, there was uh, the former Prime Minister of uh, Grenada who had an an encounter with non-humans on a beach there and spoke to the United Nations about that too. I that was mean, through Lee Spiegel um, was through, involved in that one. Yes. Uh, years ago in the 70, late seventies. Yeah. Yes. Fascinating. And the other one that Bud Hopkins wrote about um, was also yeah. um, someone I spoke to Ralph Blumenthal that uh, John Mack, um, John Mack uh, dealt dealt with way back. I have another caller here. We're going to bring that person on. And uh, we have Lauren uh, from Connecticut. Lauren, welcome to the show. Yes, thank you. Hi, Martin. Hi, Kathleen. Hi there. Welcome. I was wondering um, when, Kathleen, when you said that the um, aliens are trying to get us to uh, take care of our Earth better, um, what if we don't? What if they feel that, my goodness, these people just aren't getting it? What would be their next step? What Would they give us an ultimatum or would they take over the planet? What What are your thoughts on that? They have a non-interference policy. Uh, the only t- time that they would interfere, they have told experiencers, is uh, if we uh, were at the beginning of nuclear war and they would try to to stop it at that time. But they have a non-interference policy because they fear that if they do show up in large numbers, that it will be interpreted around the world as an invasion. There will be military action. They're militarily superior to us, and it could uh, be very bad for the people of Earth. So they don't want that to happen. Oh, okay. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate it. Thank you, Lauren. Um, yeah, well, I could definitely understand that with our with our history <laughs> of uh, warfare. Um, mm-hmm. I think we've there's something like over three hundred fifty thousand wars on record, um, you know, in history, which is pretty sad and scary. Yeah. So we're not exactly kind to each other. During uh, the 20th century, we killed almost two hundred million of our own kind. Yeah, the 20th yeah. is the worst of all on record. And yeah. people don't realize that they think, you know, the, the barbarian times or whatever. But no, that 20th century was the most brutal. I had a historian on another show I do that talked about that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's what we do. <laughs> so hopefully the 21st uh, that will be a little better this uh, this century. And the the UFOs show up at our battles. At yeah. Our wars. Yes. <laughs> Um, I have mentioned this many times, but for the person who's never heard me say it before, that I had a, uh, a insurance long before I was really looking into the topic. 
in the nineties. I looked into it a little bit. I mean, just on the outside, like if some saw something on TV or whatever, I'd watch it. But I mean, I had a, I had a insurance broker tell me um, that he was in Vietnam and uh, during the Vietnam war. And he was, he worked for a special um, segment of the air force um, that investigated UFOs. That's exactly what he told me. And, you know, I, of course, I couldn't verify that. He talked about nuclear weapons. He talked about all kinds of things. And I've been trying to figure out how to get a hold of him. I haven't been able to find him. I'd love to talk to him again about that. Mm-hmm. But uh, and anyway, uh, we have five minutes left to the show. So if you would like to call in, uh, now's, the, now's the time to call in. That number is uh, 855-472-5483. We can take one more caller if you'd like to give us a ring. Um, so in the uh, 60th anniversary, that's out now. I have it. Uh, I have the link up on on the website. And is that is that something that when they republish something like a new edition, is it a hard sell or do you do you actually get some book sell sales out of it? I've gotten loads of book sales out of it. Excellent. Yes. And um, I'm trying to push it to number one. The, the first <laughs> book was the number one bestseller. It was really wow. Yes, in its categories. Yeah, so, yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, I'm hoping that uh, people will help me to, to make the 60th anniversary uh, one a bestseller too. Yeah, and that's on Amazon, and it's a little. You just have to look. The the cover is almost identical, except it has again. I'll show it again um, for those people on um, YouTube and Facebook and Twitch. Um, the only difference is between the two books is you see the 60th anniversary, the little uh, pendant at the top. This is the original, and this is the 60th. So, uh, yeah, yeah uh, a true. great book. Uh, let's see. I think we might have one more. Oh, nope. Someone just says they bought your book just oh, now. Uh, actually, Bill. <laughs> Bill, who's answering the phone, bought your book. So he's <laughs> going to read it. That's awesome. Thank so you, you made one sale tonight. It was a successful show. Um, so a lot of times people will bring up this topic and I just want to hear your, your answer to it because people will say to me often, why do you talk about the old cases? Um, and so I, I say a lot of times, even though a case is old, a lot of times new information is found. And Mm -hmm. how do you feel about that? I, I agree. I consistently look for, um, additional scientific evidence in the Betty and Barney Hill case. And we found uh, a lot of new evidence over the past 13 years. Ah, yeah. I, we have, we do have another caller mm-hmm. and it looks like uh, Joel uh, is calling from Massachusetts. Welcome to the show. Yes. Hello. Um, I have a question for Kathleen. Um, really quickly, um, did you ever have the opportunity to speak directly with Dr. Simon regarding your um, your aunt and uncle's case? Um, particularly, um, you know, I was reading the foreword recently of Interrupted Journey, and um, he had a different conclusion um, about their experience, and I'm just wondering if you ever had the opportunity again, um, doing your research and I'll hang up to listen. Thank Thank you, Joel. Thank you. Dr. Simon was quite old when I met him for the first time. I I went to his home and had dinner with Betty 
and Barney and Alan Hynek and, and John Fuller. Um, so uh, as uh, I was about 18, 19 years old, uh, and I, I did not speak with him because I felt like I was the child in the room at that time. Um, I did a comparative analysis of Betty's and Barney's statements uh, under hypnosis as compared to Betty's dreams. And that was Dr. Simon's hypothesis. Uh, he didn't know this for certain, but uh, he I have a letter he wrote to Betty and he said, well, I, I have to do this because uh, we don't have scientific evidence. So I'm taking this stance uh, and until there is scientific evidence regarding UFOs and contact. Uh, that never came in his lifetime, I don't believe. But um, because the most of the evidence in this case came later. Um, but I did that comparative analysis, uh, sentence by sentence, and it's all in captured. I didn't make it boring. I just told what happened and compared it to the the content of Betty's dream as opposed to what each of them said individually under hypnosis. Kathleen, it's been a real pleasure. We are at the end of our show. Thank you so much. Very nice to be with you again, Mark. Yes. And again, Kathleen, uh, dash, is it dash or underscore dash? Dash. Martin. Thanks so much. And I hope you push to number one. (laughs) You take care. All right. Good night. All right, everyone. So that's it for this show. Thank you so much. And remember to come back next week. We have the call in show and uh, think of an experience you'd like to call about, or um, you just want to call and talk about a UFO sighting, any of that. So thank you so much. And remember to keep your eyes to the sky. See you next week. Stay safe.